0: Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and in this contemplation and the one to follow, we'll be getting into more interesting and important aspects of wisdom that the Start With Why theory leaves out. Last time we focused on some of the incoherence in the Start With Why account, and we expect to find incoherence and incongruence when we look into fragments of wisdom. Socrates got killed for doing just this sort of thing. He went around to the wealthy people and other thought leaders of his time, and he discovered they had all sorts of theories about life, about their economy, about their culture, about how to succeed. But he found again and again that they didn't have any real wisdom. They had some partially correct opinions, which we can think of as fragments of wisdom or fragmented wisdom. Those fragments, along with plenty of good luck, allowed them to make money and become famous. But because they lacked wisdom in its fullness, they ended up creating problems for themselves, for others, and for their culture Socrates saw that the great Athenian empire would collapse because of its lack of wisdom. He wanted to help get his fellow citizens and his culture rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty so that everyone could realize true success, true happiness and peace, and so that the culture could endure. We find ourselves in the same situation, it's funny how similar it is, how this wheel of craziness just keeps spinning round and round. Looks a little different sometimes on the outside, but that's, that's just facade. Once we look at the essence, it's the same pattern of insanity. The American empire shows many signs of sickness and decay, and many empires of the past went through the same process. They all had their thought leaders who sought to empower the status quo, to keep things going along, and they offered advice that sounded like wisdom, but it was fragmented wisdom. As we pointed out last time, fragments of wisdom appeal to our ego, and they appeal to the culture as a whole when it's stuck in a pattern of insanity. The Athenians killed Socrates, even though many people found him the wisest and most remarkable person they had ever known including some of the people in the establishment. Because he dared to question the culture and some of its influential people, its thought leaders, its, its wealthy and elite, he made a lot of enemies. Because real wisdom is dangerous to structures of power both inside of us and outside of us. We've said this many times, but it just bears repeating. And if the status quo is ignorance and oppression, then wisdom, love, and beauty will demand both our capacity to remain calm and discerning, and our courage to face potentially uncomfortable or even frightening truths. Wisdom, love, and beauty can make us uncomfortable when we're clinging to things that just don't work, in fact, if we're clinging at all. Last time, we tried to see that if we have the wrong vision of what a human being is, our soul will never fly. If we have the wrong vision of what reality is, what the world is, we will create suffering for ourselves and others. The start with why or golden circle theory is an example of dangerous wisdom in the bad sense. It gives us the wrong vision and it ultimately makes us and our culture more incoherent. Now, let's try and get clear on a few things about the role of why in our experience. This will sharpen our discernment with regard to the Start With Why theory, and it will also sharpen our discernment with respect to our whole culture, as well as our own mind. And we'll begin to see how important why really is, and how we could actually start with why in a way that leads to freedom for all of us. In other words, yet another title for this particular contemplation might be Please do start with why. Just make sure you know what why really is. We should in fact understand the why, what, and how of our experience. And the start-with-why theory gets them wrong. In fact, it doesn't really relate to experience or talk about experience in a useful way, but just the way why, what, and how are used don't fit with our activity in the world. Let's pause to make something clear, though. We're contemplating a theory, not making any sort of personal attack. The start-with-why theory is not really the product of an individual. It's the product of the dominant culture. The author of the theory didn't invent it as much as the culture did. The author simply wrote down things going on in the culture, and those things come from the application of fragmented wisdom and partially correct opinions. It's important to understand that authors of theories like this one might be people with very good intentions. And their friends may think of them as thoughtful and kind. This is precisely the trouble with the dominant culture. People can follow seemingly nice intentions and yet create a lot of problems in the world. We saw that with the Wright brothers. Airplanes have arguably been more harmful than helpful. Now worse yet, when we look with a great deal of care and discernment, we discover that perfectly nice people, perfectly intelligent and nice people, can empower and even enact evil, both in relation to systems and in their own activity. Many academics, journalists, scientists, engineers, artists, executives, and so-called thought leaders do a great deal of well-intentioned work that fundamentally perpetuates the structures of power and feeds into the pattern of insanity that threatens to collapse the conditions of life. Now, we will focus on the Start With Why theory because of how it reflects and emerges out of this pattern of insanity. So we're looking at it because of how it can illuminate the mindset of the dominant culture. So our interest is in something much larger than one author or even one idea. Ultimately, we want to enter into the fuller wisdom that these fragments incoherently reflect. Because that fuller wisdom could change everything. That fuller wisdom can give us what we most passionately seek and what we most urgently need right now. So let's go back to the why and begin to enter into its fullness, which is our own fullness. It's the fullness of our experience and our activity, the wholeness of our activity and the activity of the world even the cosmos. And so that means, to say it again, why does not reduce to motivation, but relates to things we discussed in part one of this contemplation, including our basic vision of the cosmos and our basic vision of what a human being is, our basic feel for what our own heart, mind, body, soul, and world are. Why also has to do with our basic style of thinking. That's because our thinking goes all together with our motivations and our basic feel for life. And we have a particular style of thinking in the dominant culture. Our style of thinking remains largely unconscious. And generally speaking, thinking pretends to be objective. That's a surprising challenge and a big challenge. We naively operate under the assumption that things are as they are and knowledge or objective thinking means getting at how things are in themselves. But knowledge depends on our way of knowing. And that means what we think depends on our style of thinking our style of consciousness, and our whole way of life. That makes our why much bigger and also much more subtle and profound than we are led to believe by the self-help gurus, the mindset hackers, and so on. Our style of thinking also gets caught up in our language, which can either facilitate skillful living or seduce us into ways of living that don't accord very well with reality. It seems that the Indo-European languages in general, and that includes English, have some deep problems there. Let's also note that the why of our experience is totally interwoven with the what and the how. Therefore, if we don't understand the what and the how of our experience, We really don't understand the why. We can talk all day about starting with why, but if we have mistaken the what and the how, we will only make more problems and create more suffering for ourselves and others. So, we have referred to experience. That's because why, what, and how are the three dimensions of all our experience. We have nothing outside of experience. We don't start companies. We have the experience of starting a company. Everything is experience, and all our experience arises as a why, what, and how. There is always something we are doing, a way we do it, and a why. From the standpoint of the wisdom traditions, what we do comes down to ethics, that's one way to begin talking about it. So the what does not refer merely to mundane actions, but to our way of life, in part because our whole way of life gives the context and thus helps constitute the meaning of our everyday activities. And We sometimes talk about what we do for a living. Hmm? like as if there's a job that we do that's just one thing. And then maybe the rest of our life is something else. But the wisdom traditions speak of a livelihood and a whole way of life, a path of life, and how to walk a good path. If what we do lacks ethical rootedness, then it inevitably brings harm to our own soul as well as to the soul of the world and the community of life. The what of our activity does not reduce to something like making computers. If someone asks what most computer companies do, we have to give an answer that encompasses all the ethical consequences of their activity. So what a computer company does involves extracting raw materials from the earth in ways that contribute to ecological degradation and typically contributes to violence, injustice, and inequality in places all over the world. What a computer company does also involves seeking cheap labor, usually with various kinds of exploitation. At bottom, what a computer company does is intimately tied up with its why. What a computer company does is to try and maximize profits and increase inequality those two things go together, it might seem shocking, but let's try to see things how they are. If a corporation sought to maximize equality of wealth and well-being, it would have to give up some of its own wealth. And it will do no such thing, if it can otherwise prevent it. On the contrary, a corporation seeks to maximize its own wealth, so it naturally seeks to pay its workers as little as possible, to manipulate tax laws, to seek out tax havens, and to find exploitable labor and resources anywhere in the world. In short, what a corporation does inherently involves creating inequality and injustice in societies and in the community of life as a whole, Sadly, this happens even in the case of small businesses that have close ties to local communities and very good intentions, because those businesses operate in the larger context, and so they get co-opted, they get forced to participate in a pattern of insanity, which they might otherwise want to dispel and be free from, and which they may not even be able to see very clearly. That's partly because what we are doing is often more subtle than we at first realize, even in mundane activities. If someone were to call you while you were driving to the market, they might ask, what are you doing? And you might say, driving to the market. Then they might say, ah, but you're also talking to me. And you might say, yeah, that's cute, but I'm driving to the market. However, We know that talking on a cell phone can make our driving as bad as if we had a few drinks. Scientifically validated finding. If we're talking on the phone and also driving, that's really two things, two activities that we have to keep up with. And that's not the end of it. If the person said to you, okay, but what were you doing before I called you? You might say, well, I was driving. I've been in the car for the past 10 minutes. However, if you were more honest and reflective, you might say, well, I was playing movies in my mind and talking to myself. I was playing this scene in my mind that happened last week, and I was telling myself how stupid I was. And I was thinking about what I should do the next time I see that person. And you might go on and on like that. For half our lives or more, We aren't really doing what we're doing when we're doing it. And that makes us less happy. Instead of doing the laundry, because we think, I don't want to do the laundry. We think we're bored, it's unpleasant, whatever the reason. We daydream about maybe our next vacation, because we think that's a nice thought. It's a pleasant thought, but it actually makes us less happy and less effective in our lives we are almost always happier if we do what we're doing when we're doing it but we often can't succeed in that basic level of coherence not only that but we might answer even more truthfully if someone called us while we were driving and they asked us what are What are you doing? We might say, well, I'm talking to myself with thoughts going a thousand times faster than my car, most of them making me feel like garbage. And I'm also driving a car. So I'm burning fossil fuels. I'm wearing out tires. I'm polluting the air, degrading ecologies, making a small number of people very, very rich. How about you? All of these issues are totally interwoven with the why and the how of our activity. The how of our activity is not a series of steps. And this is one of the biggest errors in the Start With Why account of its so-called golden circle. From the perspective of the wisdom traditions, how we do things refers to the quality of our being, not merely to a series of steps. The series of steps is, in one sense, just a series of what. But the how relates to the manner we perform those steps. To go back to our example, if someone calls you on the phone while you were driving to a market, they might ask you, how are you getting there? And it seems reasonable to say, I'm taking Forest Avenue or whatever it might be. But that would really answer the question, what are you doing? In other words, if someone asked you, what are you doing? A specific answer would be, I am driving on Forest Avenue. If a philosopher called you and asked, what are you doing? And you said, I'm driving to the market. And if they then asked, how are you getting there? Well, if you understood their question philosophically or spiritually, you might reply, how am I getting there? Well, I'm distracted. I'm tense. I'm glad you called because my mind is all over the place. That's the how. It's how you're presencing yourself, the quality of your mind, heart, body, and world. The how of our being in general goes in one of two directions. Ultimately speaking, it either tends toward awareness or mindlessness, or being asleep in our lives in some way. On a more relative way of talking, we could say that we either tend toward distraction, instability, reactivity, muddiness, anger, clinging, confusion, spaciness, boredom, habit, and so on, or we tend toward stability, peace, clarity, joy, spaciousness, spontaneity, inspiration, and other lovely qualities, some of them considered immeasurable in their goodness. The basic nature of how is simply awareness itself. Nevertheless, we can speak of the relative quality of awareness and it may tend in the direction of positivity. And this awareness and positivity, in turn, make our activity much more effortless, graceful, skillful, and effective. On the other hand, when the how of our being tends toward a lack of awareness, when it tends toward fear, craving, confusion, aggression, and so on, we tend to make bad decisions. And, importantly, we tend to abandon any of our most precious, intrinsic, self-transcending values. Values like love, kindness, wisdom, honor, and so on. Instead, when the how of our being gets going in a bad way, we tend to revert to extrinsic self-enhancing values like money, fame, and material goods. This is a scientifically validated tendency in our behavior, but the wisdom traditions have long taught us about it. In other words, we can't speak wisely about starting with why if we don't understand the how of our experience. The start with why theory leaves this out entirely, and yet it's essential. The why of our experience goes completely together with the how and also the what. And the how has to do with our state of mind, our state of heart, our overall state of being. Just to clarify this, what we're saying is that whatever the why we might proclaim, when the how of our being gets out of whack, we won't follow it if it's a good thing. If it's a value that we really do revere, it might be a value like family, love, honor, but when the how of our being gets out of whack, we will revert to self-centered materialistic values. Therefore, the wisdom traditions teach us how to arrive at a state of beauty, a state of grace, a state of wonder, a state of compassion, peace, and joy, a state of clarity and coherence. The start with why theory gives us nothing more than a capitalistic pep talk, and that's extraordinarily dangerous. Not only that, but it's unfair to us because it cheapens and narrows what we are. And let's think about what all of this means when we consider how to accurately describe the way corporations behave, the way we see them behave in practice. The why of most every corporation comes down to this maximizing profit at whatever cost to the world and its beings, including human beings. Why did the Ford Motor Company sell the infamous Ford Pinto when they knew it was a dangerous car? For the same reason, corporations do anything they do to maximize profit. It was a good business decision. The what of a corporation comes to degrading ecologies, perpetuating inequality and injustice, and so on. The what of a corporation is a way of life, a way of thought, speech, and action that depends on taking more than it gives back. That's crucial. The corporate livelihood the livelihood of conquest consciousness tends to involve exploitation and aggression that is either seemingly civilized or at times quite obviously brutal. But that what has to do with taking more than one gives back. That's the nature of profit. The how of a corporation itself is an attitude of aggression and manipulation. It's a habit of doing, a practice of pursuing agendas. And this attitude and style of consciousness and effort manifests by manipulating the quality of our being, manipulating our how and why, by provoking distraction in us, by provoking a lack of awareness, by provoking craving, fear, and other states of being in us that seduce us into forgetting our highest values and focusing on material things. When we look into the interwovenness of why, what, and how, we can begin to see that we cannot start with why, that we need to start with what, that we cannot ignore how. And, once we face all of that, we, in fact, need to return to why and start all over again with it, really for the first time. In other words, the wisdom traditions teach us that, in a very important sense, we do need to start with why, but they also teach us that When our why gets out of whack, we can't start there. That's the reason the spiritual and philosophical traditions start with ethics, with living a good life, and why they may involve extensive preliminary practices and other sorts of ongoing practices that help break up the detritus of a confused why, break up like the encrustation around our confused why and liberate our soul's inherent sense of purpose. For instance, in contrast to the wisdom traditions, think of how corporations operate. Corporations realize quite clearly the importance of how we do things. And we're talking about the how as we described it here, not the series of steps nonsense. Corporations know about the how we're talking about they have tried to hack into the teachings of the wisdom traditions when it comes to the how of our experience. Because when it comes to their employees, they don't want distracted employees. And when it comes to their customers, they want distracted customers. So corporations want distracted customers, but they do not want distracted employees. And that means they will happily bring in mindfulness teachers to teach their employees to improve their how, to improve the quality of their being while they're at work. However, the wisdom traditions would never teach mindfulness without asking what a person would be doing with it. If a person's job involves degrading ecologies or creating inequality and injustice, then we don't want to make them better at it. The wisdom traditions also wouldn't teach us too much about, say, mindfulness, without a basic cosmogram. That's a vision of the cosmos and a basic feel for our nature, our fullest potential and the larger meaning of life. They wouldn't expect us to simply accept our nature, potential, and purpose on blind faith, but they would want us to have a basic orientation. That's all part of the why. And again, we have this need to break up the detritus in our why and to get in touch with our deeper capacity to relate skillfully with this aspect of all our experience. It's an aspect of everything we experience. Now, with respect to giving our why a kind of clearing out and rejuvenation, the wisdom traditions recognize that one of the problems in our life in general is that we lack coherence in our why. We can see this in three major ways. First of all, we see our incoherence when we investigate the interwovenness of the why, what, and how of experience. That's what we were just talking about. When our mind becomes distracted, fearful, agitated, anxious, confused, and so on, we lose intimacy with our why. We lose intimacy with the things we truly revere in our heart. Similarly, our ethical ideals may conflict with the kinds of values we get asked to serve in our work, In our public life as citizens, in our family life, even in our friendships, we can find ourselves being asked to serve values that just conflict with our sense of what's right, what's good. In terms of the corporate world, the core values that get brought to life as a matter of fact, as opposed to the propaganda, have little to do with our highest values. I mean, first of all, most of us don't think that maximizing profit is a value we hold dear. No interest, that's the prime directive for corporations. But even the propaganda often makes little sense. As we noted before, challenging the status quo and thinking differently are supposedly central to the why of the Apple, Apple corporation, according to the propaganda, but those are not ethical values let alone are they the values that corporations like Apple actually manifest. So we're confused on two levels. It's crazy-making. The second place we find incoherence in our why is in the fragmentation and incongruence of our cosmogram. Education should help us enter a functioning graceful, inspiring cosmogram, which is, again, the feel that we have for what the cosmos is, our basic sense of what a human being is, what this world is, and what this cosmos is. Now, education should help us enter a functioning, graceful, inspiring cosmogram, but our education system is obsolete. Practically speaking, we get educated as if we live in a Newtonian machine. And yet. Even our science has rejected that cosmogram. It's outdated, incorrect, and incoherent. Then we have the further challenges of working with cosmograms from our religious and philosophical traditions and sensing how they accord with our current scientific findings as well as how they can empower us to attune with reality. Our science, sadly in many ways, is a mess, and its fragmentation, as well as the fragmentation of our religious and philosophical views, leaves us without a mutually empowering, mutually nourishing, and mutually liberating view of ourselves and our world. So we're left without those because of the state of philosophy in our culture, the state of religion, and the state of science. And that means our why has become incoherent. Just to clarify, a cosmogram is not merely a picture of a universe. It's a blueprint for the mind. A cosmogram helps the mind orient itself toward the wholeness it innately is, but nevertheless must become. A bad cosmogram or mandala does just the opposite. A fragmented and fragmenting cosmogram orients us toward incoherence and suffering for ourselves and others. This is why the Newtonian image and the capitalistic cosmogram became so destructive. They orient us toward becoming a machine, treating life and our world as profane so much so that we developed computational theories of mind while degrading ecologies to the point of threatening all life on Earth. The capitalistic cosmogram, the economic mandalas of the dominant culture, give us a bad blueprint for the mind. They orient us in unskillful ways, and our activity becomes out of attunement with reality itself, and thus out of alignment with our own nature. They they make us incoherent with ourselves. A skillful and realistic cosmogram or mandala gives us a skillful and realistic why for all our activity. And, crucially, such a cosmogram awakens our sleeping imagination, empowering our creativity to heal the world and to cultivate the whole of life onward. We may think of ourselves as imaginative or creative, and we may think of certain corporations and their workers that way. But from a spiritual or philosophical perspective, our imaginative and creative capacities remain limited, severely limited by the dominant culture. And everything we call innovation amounts to perpetuating the status quo of conquest consciousness. Sometimes it gets a little bit reformed, gets a little bit of civilizing, a little buff and polish here and there, but we're still moving in the same basic direction. We don't get training in this culture that will awaken our visionary capability. We long to live visionary lives and to be guided by a fully awakened imagination and a fully empowered creativity that can help and even heal the world. The dominant culture, as a matter of practice, does not offer that kind of why. It's not to say we can't find it. It's not to say people don't try to move toward it. It's that it's not the practice of the culture. You have to go against the culture in order to arrive at that sort of vision, imagination, and creativity. Now we mentioned that we could find at least three forms of incoherence. In addition to the two we just discussed, the incoherence that's the interwovenness itself and the incoherence in the cosmogram, we can also discover incoherence in the nature of our intentions. So those are the three. We find incoherence in just from the interwovenness, Incoherence just from the cosmogram, the bad blueprint for the mind that our culture gives us, the bad sense of vision. And then finally, in our very intentions, every time we go to act. Now, that third one, all of them ultimately relate to the interwovenness of things, because interwovenness is by definition everywhere. Our intentions are interwoven with the other things we've discussed. And they're inherently interwoven with the what and how of our experience even though our intentions we could say like relatively speaking have more to do with why we do things we say why did you do that and we think about what our intentions were as far as the incoherence of our intentions we could consider a fact that i, I often discuss i probably discuss this in other episodes as well there's no no end to the usefulness in thinking about this that almost no one wakes up in the morning thinking they want to suffer thinking that they want to degrade ecologies, that they want to make a small number of people extremely wealthy, that they want to perpetuate injustice and so on, but that's what we do. If someone asked us why we got up this morning, if someone asked about our why as it appears in reality, as it appears in the actual living of our lives, we might have to pause. We may have thought that we got out of bed with one set of answers to the question of why, but then we look around and we see the state of the world. We see the injustice, the inequality, ecological degradation, extinctions, the personal and interpersonal suffering that we somehow contributed to, that we somehow helped make possible because we're doing this with such consistency and we when we look at the consistency of the results that injustice is perpetuated inequality has increased ecological degradation continues to increase and when we look at those things it seems that we have to admit either that we really do intend them or we simply don't understand how to properly intend our most precious values because they aren't reflected in the circumstances of the world. If we really knew how to intend peace, love, happiness, and justice, we'd have them. Simple as that. The fact that we don't have them and that few people seem to actively intend the things we do have Well, that should give us pause. What on earth is going on? That no one gets up in the morning wanting to create the conditions for their own suffering and the ill-being of the world, and yet we perpetuate suffering and ill-being. When we think about why we do the things we do, the truth of that why may not be what we wish it were. Again, that happens not only because why, what, and how are interwoven, and we somehow lack skill in these three, in each of them and in them together, but also because in each of them we exhibit incoherence. Let's think a little further about the incoherence of just the why dimension, and especially the incoherence of our intentions. We find a major challenge here. We have to confront the rather frightful wisdom in the old saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We do need good intentions and the issue seems in part that we need to recover our capacity to intend. We have to want to intend wisdom, love and beauty. We have to want to intend in accord with our basic sense of the sacredness of the world and all its beings. But we don't seem to know how to do that. Why? Sometimes we have incoherence in relation to our daily life. For instance, we may want to do a very good job at some task, really want to. Someone asked us, we would say, I want to do a good job. And at the same time, we want to hurry. Or we find it meaningless or demeaning in some way. Or we resent the boss or whoever it was who gave us that task. And there we have it immediately, incoherence. We want to care about the task and we don't care about the task. We want it to turn out well and we kind of don't want it to turn out well. We may want to feel healthy, and yet it might be that we can't seem to remember to take the medicine the doctor gave us, for instance. A doctor might either before or after heart surgery tell a patient that they face serious risks and that they can significantly extend their life and avoid further surgery or a premature death if they'll just take one pill a day. And many patients can't do this simple thing. They seemingly forget again and again. What explains this? Often, a conflicting intention, held unconsciously or partially conscious but repressed. For instance, the person may, with careful inquiry, realize that something in them feels that if they take the medication, it means they're old, sick, or something like that. This reveals that karma can overtake our highest values. Spiritually speaking, we wouldn't say that one of our highest values is to appear young and healthy. But psychologically, our anxiety, fear, and confusion can create a value that we enact even if we wouldn't want to admit that value as important to us. We functionally behave as if we value appearing young, more than we value our own life or value being there for our family or anything else that we might want to say is a real value we hold. A duality thus appears in our lives between our values as we would reflectively embrace them and our values as they appear in our behavior, the things we actually allow to drive us. Some of this happens unconsciously. Some of it happens with some degree of awareness. We may be aware that we feel scared of aging or we feel embarrassed at the thought that others would see us as frail or sick. And at the same time, we wouldn't want to embrace values based on fear. And we may tell ourselves that we really do want to remember to take the medication. We really do want to lose the weight. We really do want to succeed at work make partner, get the next promotion, whatever it might be, consciously we we may insist and we may profess that we want to take care of our children. We want to be good citizens. We want to be good people. But we may have conflicting intentions that remain quite unconscious or they might be conscious, but not fully awake in their implications. and our culture seduces us into values that can sound rather silly on reflection. Why would we ever place confidence or fun among the very highest of our values? Some people would, and I've seen it happen, some people would, in a certain context, choose fun or confidence over a list of values that includes things like wisdom and love. They might choose that as their number one value. Why would we choose fun without wanting the wisdom to know how to have fun? Why would we choose fun over true joy and a sense of the sacredness of life? This is not to belittle anyone, but rather together to critique our context. Concepts like fun, freedom, confidence, and more have particular meanings in contexts dominated by conquest consciousness. When we feel that life is a drag, when we find ourselves engaged in meaningless work, when we feel the threat of ecological collapse and we feel powerless, as well as experiencing a profound grief and anxiety about the whole situation, we just want to have fun we want to feel free we want to escape from all our burdens and feel confident in ourselves because of our context and all of its delusions and bad habits we end up latching on to values the ego likes and we end up ignoring the soul this is not to say We all have to be the same somehow, quite the contrary. We all have to be uniquely what we are. And at the same time, we share a common ground. And something of our highest values must somehow overlap, or we place ourselves in immediate conflict, not only with other humans, but with the community of life. Either the common ground exists, or we're in real trouble. Either we find it, or we're in real trouble. The importance of facing up to unconscious or egocentric intentions can't really be overstated. And we often fail to see, or at least fail to fully see, how parts of our psyche drive us to self-sabotage, drive us to create conflict, and to do things that go against our own ideals. Only the practice of love wisdom can liberate us. Love wisdom also helps us to see how our personal intentions relate with the rest of the world. For instance, we may have the intention to make a good living and get a nice car. But because of the facts of our situation, we must also have the intention to degrade the world to oppress people in other countries, to perpetuate inequalities, and so on. We often don't see that systems have intentions. And thus the economic system effectively has intentions and therefore it co-ops our intentions in order to enact its own. We not only we'll fail to see this clearly enough and consistently enough, but in many ways we actively misknow our situation. In other words, we think we know what's going on, what we are, what the system is, and so on and so on, and our supposed knowledge becomes the very obstruction to a better world for everyone. This misknowing, this active misknowing of our situation, relates to the misknowing of mind, including a biased and dogmatic attempt to localize mind inside our skulls and the attempt to atomize the world, seeing only separate individuals who pursue their own conscious purposes. We usually don't see how each action presences mind. And we tend not to sense, certainly not with any richness, the larger ecologies of mind all around us. That we're walking around in mind. Mind embedded in mind. So we can end up functionally living out of attunement with the world. As strange as that should sound to us, that we could live out of attunement with reality. And we can end up thinking we are pursuing our own intentions, but in fact we mainly pursue the intentions of the economic system that manipulates us. All of this means that the why of our activity relates to our karma. Our karma is what arrives in a situation even before we do. We start off in a seemingly innocent conversation with someone, and we end up in an argument. Or we end up putting our foot in our mouth or somehow limiting a situation that could have been much more enriching for us and for others. If someone asked us why we did that, we might say, I don't really know. That's the most honest answer for a lot of us. We might admit that we got triggered and that we have a habit of behaving just the way we did in a given situation, but we can't really see our karma or else we could drop it, not really seeing the nature of our mind or else we would function with greater skill. For much of what we do, the most honest answer to why we do it is I don't know. We can certainly tell a good story and spin all sorts of propaganda as well onto activities in retrospect, but that's all intellectual projection. At a deeper level, we are lived by powers we pretend to understand, and many of them are basically karmic patterns. Our karma, and our culture's karma, has us before we can think. And karma is a major why. It constitutes the why for most things we do. So when someone tells us to start with why, and they don't tell us how to confront and transform our karma and our culture's karma. Whoa, the karma of conquest consciousness. Whoa, the karma on Turtle Island. When someone tells us to start with why and does not teach us that we need to confront, let alone teach us how to confront and transform all that karma, they have left us with confusion. They have left us poised to perpetuate a pattern of insanity and to keep karmic wounds wide open, festering. We cannot start with why. Because the whys of our karma, our unconscious, and our culture have already started with us. They have already shaped our thought and our activity. Apple's why, the corporate why, that already has us. Not the fake one, not the propaganda one, but the real one. Maximize profit, degrade ecologies, expand inequality. That's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves with this cultural karma, personal karma, transpersonal karma, karma of lineage and landscape, the karma of conquest consciousness. And we're going to have to face it. And the wisdom traditions, they teach us how to do that. How we can become the medicine. So the why of our action, we could say, relates most directly to the presence or lack of wisdom, love, and beauty in our lives. That's what we have to somehow find a way to start with. The interwovenness of these things carries tremendous significance. And if you have followed along this far, we now come to what might be the most essential and vitalizing aspect of all these contemplations. This kind of love wisdom demands our most dedicated care and attention. So take time to relax and reflect, because we'll pick up this thread of contemplation in our next episode. In some ways, it's the most important thing we could contemplate together, so I invite you to join in. It's the heart of what we've built up to so far. But let's not miss the profundity of what we've already considered. If we look with care at our activity in the world, we begin to wonder if we really honestly know how to intend. And most especially, if we know how to intend wise action, loving and compassionate action, and also graceful, beautiful, and creative action, without creating all sorts of negative side effects. It's all well and good to write beautiful music, but if we live a lifestyle of addiction, aggression, consumption, reactivity, we simply put more suffering and confusion into the world and we can do better than that. When someone tells us to start with why, we owe it to ourselves, to everyone we love and to the world, to ask ourselves, with what mind shall I do this? What is the mind I will use to start with why? Our mind, our heart, our body, and our world are the instruments we will employ to formulate this why and act upon it. But we don't know our mind well enough to pursue our intentions without degrading the world and carrying on with a lot of suffering in ourselves and perpetuating it in others. In a profound sense we don't know how to start with a why that can heal our karma. Again not just personal karma but the cultural karma, the karma of our ancestors as it appears right now in the landscapes and in the very bodies of the human and non-human beings who live here with us and make our lives possible. We need to arrive at a deeper understanding of what it means to start with why, and in fact, what it means to act more holistically so that we start with the why, what and how all together. In the meantime, observe if you can the ways your intentions, and the intentions of the culture seem incoherent, the ways in which unconscious intentions seem to direct our activity, the ways in which we maintain a gap between the values we claim to hold dear on the one hand and the values we seem to manifest in practice on the other. If you have reflections or questions about today's contemplation, send them in at wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll address some of them in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.